0: Happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 179 for the 27th of May, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I'm the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. And joining me, as always, tonight... Good evening, Dr. West Fryer, How are you this evening,
1: sir? Good evening. I am well. And as I was commenting before the show, it feels like we just did the show like (laughs) night before last. So I don't know what that means about COVID. I published late this last weekend. So anyway, the days are apparently all running together when we're not entirely trapped, but sometimes (laughs) (laughs) So I am the... Uh, technology integrations and innovation specialist at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City. And we had our last day of required professional development following the end of classes on Friday. So my contract has me working through June, but this year, among other things, I'll get to facilitate some Minecraft virtual summer camps. So anyway, I'm forward to. To a change of pace, and how is life uh, with the nose to the virtual schooling grindstone? Apparently, it's rather magical because the background is looking somewhat Harry Potterish, and I think some spells have been cast in your general direction or something. It might be.
0: I am uh, been accused of being a magician before, so I guess I might as well just own it. So all's good here in Missoula. Um, uh, I've talked to a lot of administrators in Montana in the last couple of weeks, and one of the big topics uh is schools. We don't have a unified calendar in the state of Montana, and some districts are uh, going as early as the second week of August, and some go as late as the third week of June. And so we have a big diversity here. So schools started graduating three weeks ago, four weeks ago uh in the state, uh but I've talked to a lot of administrators that – You know, that now the weight of of having figure out how to celebrate seniors is over with and well, not quite over with for some, but it's continuing to, to evolve and decisions are made. I know that the Missoula County Public Schools, the district where I physically am located, uh, is going to do a face-to-face graduation, but they're going to do it in the massive Washington Grizzly stadium, Stadium at the University of Montana and limit visitors and have social distancing in play. So now that those conversations are, you know, naturally ending because the time's passed for graduations for a lot of districts, we're starting to have conversations about what this summer and this fall looks like. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the past uh, since COVID-19 has, has dominated, uh, uh, the, all of our lives, but certainly the lives of those in education. And, um, it's a, big set of decisions and lots of things can happen in the next three months. And one of the things that I'm reminded of is that uh, for all practical purposes, uh, we're not even the halfway point between when this started and when school is going to start back up this fall. So uh, and it feels like this has been going on forever at this point. And uh, so a lot of time uh, to think and a lot of things, plans to make. And I would imagine, based on the conversations I'm hearing, There's lots of interesting things to think about. Many staff members may not be able to return in the fall due to uh, a fragile health. As I've mentioned a number of times in the podcast, if I were in the classroom right now, I would have to, I would have to not go to school. I am immunosuppressed by medication. I'm a kidney transplant recipient. It's something that, um, I take very, uh, uh, critical care of, uh, with several medications and minding of my health and it would be irresponsible for me, uh, at this point until we know more about COVID to, you know, stick myself in a classroom with 30 students, uh, uh it, it, no matter their health status or not, it's the, uh, you know, 140 I might see in a day and the, the, the law of large numbers, uh, plays against me at that point. So, that's what's going on here, but I would love to talk more about all these conversations. My guess is so we're going to touch on all these topics tonight. And Wes, uh, it, this is not just you and I chit-chatting. What, what are we actually doing here on the EdTech Situation Room?
1: Well, <clears throat> literally, folks. Every week we solve probably every technology crisis, at least in terms of a of a policy level, and then a how do you apply it level. So. We're, 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 uh, you know, delivering babies and, and solving global issues. Uh, but actually, we're probably just having conversations. Hopefully provoking all of us to connect more dots and, you know, understand how, uh, issues relate to us in our lives. So we're talking about headlines in the news. We've got a collection of articles that you can find at edtechsr.com slash links. Topics for episode 179 tonight on May 27th include COVID 19, media literacy, Chrome OS, Google, China, Huawei 5G, Apple, Windows, and copyright. So given such wonderful choices, Dr. Neifer, Where would you desire to begin tonight's solving of global challenges?
0: Well, let's go ahead, and uh, my guess is we'll probably spend the first half on these broader COVID media literacy issues. I have to say, um, you know, we probably could do the podcast just on media literacy. There's enough going on in the world, and I know that's a passion of yours, Wes, and as a former uh, social studies teacher, classroom social studies teacher, it's a big top uh, uh, topic of passion of mine as well, but it's becoming acute in w- the way we're trying to figure out what media really looks like in 2020. We've called this in the past uh, the technology correction, this notion that post-2015-16, the scandals related to Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and data mining and all the things that that became kind of, um, I I guess, a a symbol of the way people were engaging in technology. And then what we do with it afterwards is really coming to a head, especially in light of the heightened tension around the U.S. election. But let's go ahead and knock out a couple quick uh, uh, COVID articles um really interesting article from yesterday's Washington Post that says the Census Bureau estimates that a third of Americans are now showing signs of clinical anxiety and depression, and um, there's a lot of ways to break that data down, and I'm sure that no one would be surprised to find out the more affluent you are, the less likely you have COVID-related anxiety or depression symptoms. But one of the reasons why I'm mentioning this and it's something that that I've had to think about and also work with my faculty at Montana's State Virtual School is that we are not living in normal times and we can't make expectations like it is simply just staying at home. There's a broader thing going on here that I'm sure is providing extraordinary stress for the students that we serve in K-12 education and I think there's a lot of, of obvious symptoms of this and certainly a lot of signs of this is occurring but one of the things we're going to have to think about is if schools don't go back in session this fall or if they start and then go to closures or if school looks radically different and I'm not talking about the kind of revolutionary chat that's going on on places like EduTwitter where people are dreaming what new schools could look like in light of the fact that we have to make some broad changes anyways. I'm talking about really unfortunate situations where students can't really interact with one another or really can't interact with a teacher or a fourth of teachers can't come into the school building or a fourth of students can't come in the school building because of health issues. And so uh, it's probably not as much of a discussion topic other than it is a reminder that we are dealing with humans in this industry. It's a human-based industry. And my guess is before this is said and done, it's going to leave an awfully big thumbprint in the psyche of, of, of almost all of us in the industry. So don't need to talk about that in any uh, real detail, but I thought that was interesting. And then one other uh, follow-up article, great article from The Verge on May 25th talking about how 3D printers are the front lines of the COVID pandemic. And we talked about several weeks back the Montana mask. That is the designed mask in the state of Montana that could be printed with a 3D printer that could serve quite efficiently as a medical grade mask. And a lot of dentist office and veterinary clinics and other non-emergency care facilities that wanted to stay in business to continue to serve, uh, you know, their constituency, couldn't find personal protective equipment. Uh, they ended up having to uh, kind of scrounge together strategies and in Helena, uh, teachers I know that had run maker spaces or great interactive tech classrooms. Shout out to Buffy Smith, the computer science teacher in Helen high school who was printing off these masks and uh, giving them. And I think at some point we're also selling them to, to various places across Montana for protective equipment. And if you are sitting on a 3d printer, uh, I don't, wouldn't say they've gone out of fashion. They certainly have, have kind of left the headlines, right? But, uh, certainly, uh, you know, worthy to take a look at those articles. And Wes, we've talked about 3D printing
1: a lot. Do you have a 3D printer? No, we don't. Um, when uh, when Shelly was teaching it at Positive Tomorrows, um, a, a private school for homeless children downtown in Oklahoma City, there was a summer that when they had just got one and they needed help figuring that out. And so we got to borrow it for the summer and, you know, printed some different things. Um, we have a couple at school. Um, but honestly, I have not gotten whole hog into that. I've only, our librarian, um, our, both of our librarians actually uh, for uh, elementary and middle as well as high school are really into it. And, and they've got 3d printers and they've, you know, Tinkercad and student projects and things like that. Um, they've done the most with it. I've, I've just, I've dabbled only a little bit. So are, are you in full Production of some kind of gear at the micro home. And, uh, uh, I, you, the rumor is you have just a few computers to, to power the revolution there. So, do 3D printers fit into your mix of uh, technology tools at this point?
0: I have to say that sadly, no, um, I do not have a 3D printer. And in part because, um, like, I, I, I could certainly be entertained by it, but I didn't have a use for it. I, I can say my brother in law, who's an engineer, um, right now he's, uh, kind of between, between formal engineering jobs and actually we mentioned, uh, uh, earlier, uh, in the podcast late, I think it was late 2019, he did do a failed Kickstarter trying to sell his, uh, uh, kind of super advanced badging system, uh, for those that had to wear a professional badge. But, um, the notion of a 3D printing is very interesting to me, but, you know, I, jumped on such bandwagons before only to find out that if I don't have a reason to use it daily as part of, of my job then it ends up sitting in the closet but I am super excited because I, I I think kids will read these articles and I think these stories will be told and I think those that are running makerspaces and I love the notion of a 3D printer and a library um, I think that it's good to show that you can do something at home, right? You can fabricate. The point of the 3D printer is to provide an extraordinary opportunity for, uh, you know, fabricating ideas, you know, to help uh, spur creativity and think about, you know, the whole maker movement. And, Wes, you had another article regarding Swiss uh, uh, Switzerland pilots. You want to talk about that one?
1: Yeah, definitely. So uh, uh, oh, sure. I'll – Am I am I muted? Did I mute myself?
0: No, I just I just laughed at the fact that I it's 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 Switzerland pilots as opposed to I was thinking it was like a zzzz pilot. So I need to read the whole headline. Please go ahead, sir.
1: That's okay. Yeah, this is this is an app. So this is and this is for COVID nineteen. So this is in gadget on May twenty sixth. Uh, Switzerland pilots a contact tracing app using Google and Apple pet. Several thousand people are now testing Swiss COVID. They're going to have to change the law for this thing to go out to, you know, millions of people. But basically uh, what this is going to allow people to do is to identify and say, hey, you know, either I have COVID-19 or I've been exposed to COVID-19. And then other people running the app uh who have been within a certain proximity of that person for like a certain po- t- period of time, like 15 minutes or whatever, Is this is going to use technology to, to basically notify folks and be able to let people know if this is in broad use, you know, anybody who is running this app, you're going to, you're going to be able to tell. And I don't, it's not clear to me if you have to be running the app and if, or, you know, maybe there's technology. There's some other articles we may get to tonight about updates that have been pushed and, you know, this technology that uses, uh, Bluetooth and, and other kinds of, location aware technologies is pretty fascinating, but the privacy implications of this are also pretty, pretty seismic. So Dr. Neifer, where do you fall today on contact tracing via smartphone, you know, intelligent reporting Um, any concerns there, or you think this will be important and fantastic, you know, as we look at contact tracing as something I think we're going to need to continue to, keep a lid on the outbreak of the COVID-19.
0: I like the notion that a lot of these software suites are are using open source philosophies so that uh, sneaky things don't end up in the code that are, um, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, like uncomfortable, creepy, right? Like where those data sets are going. But I, I just, I, I can't imagine having this tool set available to us and not utilizing it. If we could do that and be able to provide some element of free movement, but then also give people the opportunity to say that if they've been exposed to something that potentially, or someone that potentially has, uh, uh, or is you know shedding virus, then you know we can do something about that. And you know, I know that's easy for me to say because I have a particular sensitivity to this in light of my health status, but um, that's not something. Uh, you know, we, we have to continue to debate this. I don't think anyone's app or anyone's system yet, including Apple or Google's, uh, any of these are ready for wide distribution yet. They're still very much in testing phases and trying to figure out the effectiveness of this. Um, also, uh, you know, talking about data privacy and, and, you know, who to give access to those data databases and data sets. But yeah, I think we should be definitely be exploring this further.
1: Peg, Peggy George, who's jo- joining us live. Uh, hello, Peggy, and hello to my mother, I think, who might be watching tonight. Uh, Peggy just put an article in that we can chat about quickly. We've got a number of articles under the Chrome title. This one could also go under security. Um, this one, let me link it here, Jason, so you can get to it. Um, which, of course, if you'd like to go to these articles, you can go directly to edtechsr.com slash links, and you can find this. The headline is really a click, kind of clickbait. But perhaps I don't know. It's it's Google just gave millions of users a reason to quit Chrome. Uh, this is from Forbes and uh, Gordon Kelly, a senior contributor um, from uh, May 26th. The article actually says that Google engineers, <coughs> pardon me, have um, identified this uh, and reported this is via ZDNet. That unsafe code within Chrome is responsible for seventy percent of its security vulnerabilities and one hundred and twenty five of those one hundred and thirty critical bugs found in the browser over the last year now that 's kind of an interesting of course code is going to be responsible for bugs that are that are in it anyway they 're blaming c and c plus plus and what the what the uh, author is saying is that, hey, Firefox is built on a different, you know, basis, um, Edge, Opera, Brave, they're all Chromium-based, but Firefox is not. It's built on Rust, and it's safe, and and it's wonderful, and so it says, to Google's credit, it's now looking to address the memory problem, blah, blah, blah. I would not quit Chrome. I would not take a single article, you know, like this, and um, I don't know. It's, it's sometimes with these security articles, I mean, if I read that right, it's I don't know. That's, that's, yes, of course the, the vulnerabilities within Chrome are due to the code base. I, I don't know. That, that doesn't strike me as, as time to abandon Chrome. So how do you read articles like this, Jason, especially ones that are, you know, proposing some dramatic changes like switch your browser now? You know, you can used to this and it's time to change. Thoughts? Well,
0: I, 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 those articles only mean something if, in my mind, they've discovered where what what they refer to as zero-day exploits are actually. Uh, uh actually delivered upon, right? So in other words, if I mean because it, frankly all code is buggy and all code has holes in it, the question is who finds it first and what they do with that right? Like that that's the problem with computer code. And like we talked about a couple years back when they found that massive issue in the BIOS, right? like the the software that that, that interfaces between your hardware and the operating system uh, had a, had a massive problem that had to do with Intel chips. Um, well, you can't you can't pull the chip out of your laptop. It's stuck there. You know, uh, 79, 80 percent of, of of all consumer electronics um, in the last 20 years were made by Intel or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, consumer um uh laptop and desktop electronics were 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 made by Intel so it's not like we can be you get rid of them so hope things are patched uh run updates on your operating system run updates on your browser the good news is is that's less complicated than it was you know even uh, 10 years ago because most of that happens in the background now you yourself don't have to take any actions to have the Chrome browser update for example because that's automatic but you know be careful um I don't like I, I don't find that article persuasive either. Right. And my guess is, is if you start sniffing around, yes, Firefox is based on Rust. I don't really understand the implications of that personally. But my guess is, is that Firefox has its own share of issues, maybe less, but still issues exist.
1: Well, reading the article a little bit further, it is talking about the code base and some vulnerabilities, how, you know, C++ and C are 35 years old and, you know, the, the need for, uh, I guess, newer and, and more secure um, code. I, I would sure. say this, this does point to the fact that we need to be updating our browsers. And we actually need to be happy that there are multiple options for browsers. You know, what's happened, we've talked about this on the show, super interesting that Microsoft's adopted Chromium, right? There is no more Internet Explorer on a Microsoft code base, which became Microsoft Edge. That new blue E <clears throat> is actually running, you know, Chromium. Um, so these things need to be continually updated. And, and even though, you know, all this us suffer to varying degrees, the baby duck syndrome, which yes, you can, you know, search for it in Wikipedia. It's where we are imprinted like the baby duck with its mama on a particular technology. And that tends to be what we want to stick with. And so we have our, our habits of what kind of email client we like and the browser we like and all these sorts of things. So we do need to be keeping an eye for security and we definitely want to be utilizing um, updated versions of whatever it is that we're running but I think you know this particular article is is pointing out that you know there's issues with the code base, but what um you know it's going to take a whole lot to get me to to change off of uh Chrome Now, I will ask Jason you were playing with the new Microsoft uh, browser chromium mm-hmm. yeah. Is it, and is, is it still called Edge? And what's the update for that? Cause it's been a few weeks since we talked about that.
0: Yeah, so I, I use it when I am in the Microsoft universe, right? I'm not talking about on Windows because you can, you can be on a Windows machine and still be very much steeped in, in the, the Google universe. But when I am on any Microsoft property. Right. So I'm using I'm an Outlook or I'm using web based word or web based PowerPoint or Excel. So mostly with my work with a couple of my side projects like the Northwest Council of computer education, they are on uh, Office 365. I prefer that browser because it seems to work ever so slightly better, seems faster, crisper, uh, more stable with the Microsoft products themselves. But it's great. I mean, it's it's a nice browser. It uh, it feels very Chrome like uh, uh, in the way it interacts with the with websites and also the way you can. It's clearly got a Microsoft skin on it, but it works basically the same as Chrome. Um, And it looks like the good Microsoft design. I like Google design, too, but the kind of Windows 10. Design language is, is well baked into it. And if I were a Microsoft person full time and weren't so invested personally and professionally in the Google architecture, right? Like I'm a big Google Docs guy and, and, and my day job utilizes that. I probably would consider a switch to Edge. It's, it's a great browser.
1: So this is actually a great media literacy opportunity too. Um, Peggy was saying that this article had alarmed folks in a Mac user group that she's a part of. So this is a great time to apply what um, what uh, Mike Caulfield Holden on Twitter calls the SIFT strategy, um, and this and employ something called reading laterally across the web, which means what other sources are talking about this. And anytime we have an article, especially one that we, you know, oh my gosh, you know, we, we, we respond like, okay, this, this may be a big deal. Uh, the first step of SIFT is to stop. Um, and we want to be investigating the source and we want to also be, um, look, uh, looking for, you know, reading laterally and seeing what else. So what I just did <clears throat> was I went to Google news and I put in two words, Chrome vulnerability to see what other, you know journalists are are picking up the article and writing about it um there are really only three articles in the last week uh well no there's some more well i'm seeing an article from zdnet with a different headline it says chrome colon 70% of all security bugs are memory safety issues um and and you know so there's a there's an article covering the same thing but with a very different headline uh and so um i think that you know it Obviously, we need, need need to take a look at this uh, and and watch this, but um, the headlines can certainly grab our attention a little more. And and frankly, that is what journalism today still tries to do in an attention economy is to is to grab our headlines. So um, well, yeah, and Forbes it.
0: now. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Forbes now has a contributor model too, right? Which means that that uh, and and you know a little about this, Wes, but that you know you don't you don't necessarily have to have. A, you know, a credential, it's not like you're a Forbes reporter or you're a Forbes hired journalist, right? And there are a lot of very, uh, in the tech world, at least with Forbes, a lot of their tech, uh, tech coverage does tend to have very clickbaity, very, you know, grandiose headlines.
1: I was offered, and I mentioned this on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, a deal where if I wanted to pay several hundred dollars, you know, I, I have been invited to be a Forbes, um affiliate and I can be writing for them. And so I, one of the things I did with that article too, Peggy, was take a look at the, you know, the person who is, who is the author. So something to watch, uh, something to be aware of. I definitely wouldn't say, uh, panic, but, um, you know, with the, hey, that's why, Isn't it cool that we can have a chance to respond live to those kinds of things? And this that's actually, I think, a good case for take this to the classroom level where we want to be practicing these kinds of web literacy skills ourselves and then taking teachable moments to to talk with students about those. Because how are you going to judge, you know, whether or not this source and this information uh, is is val—is believable so that I should go ahead and share it? Uh, and, and whether I should believe it or not. And one of the big things that is a change from the old information literacy, which was like all about go to the about page. And I mean, it's okay to do that, but even more important today, especially with a source that you are not sure about. And of course, Forbes is a is a known source. But like Jason said, how many people realize that, you know, there's thousands of people writing for Forbes and a lot of people pay to play. So they're actually paying money so they can put those articles. It makes it a little different than The New York Times or or Washington Post or some ar- some uh, sources like that. Um, but it's this idea of lateral reading uh, and just making sure that there's other folks that are covering that and you don't just have an outlier source, you know, who is reporting. That, so
0: and, and I would have one of thing specific to this article, too, that, that I wouldn't say this article was overly techie. When you start digging into the code base and what what programming languages you're using and trying to understand the difference between C and Rust. And I mean, you, you, we're a couple of nerds. I think we are functional enough to understand what this article is saying. But if the risk here was as dramatic as the headline More consumer facing tech journalists would be covering this. This would be in the New York Times. This would be on, uh, the Kim Commando show. This would be on Leo Laporte's Saturday Tech show that's syndicated. Like, you would hear a lot more about this and probably a call from consumer groups like Consumer Reports, for example, to move away from the browser. And I get that, you know, there is a, um, uh, uh, there's some cachet to using dramatic headlines like this but whenever i see something like that um it's a sign to me that that you definitely want to utilize strategies to to evaluate that although we joke at work oftentimes that when we're right helping teachers write content it would be kind of funny to utilize like clickbait content right like Louis the sixth was a bad guy. You'll never know or never figure out what he did next kind of stuff. Hey, so
1: And part of media literacy is learning how these messages are crafted and helping students, you know, create, um, Peggy's asking, how would we know that about Forbes uh, pay to play? I never would have known if I hadn't been contacted directly, you know, and I guess when you, when you dig into their affiliate network and stuff like that, those things are, it's not a secret, but I, I had seen Forbes and basically put them with Newsweek and Time and everybody else and and didn't realize that they they have this kind of a model. So, you know, it's this is why one of the reasons why media literacy is just so challenging, because even as an adult who's been, you know, reading the news for uh, almost 50 years. Well, I haven't been reading for 50 years, but, you know, I'm approaching (laughs) that birthday and it's been I have been reading the news for a while. It's very challenging. So, um
0: well, and there's also a difference between Forbes, the the magazine, and Forbes.com, too, right? So that that's another piece of the puzzle here. And there is some discussion about this on the Wikipedia page, but Forbes.com utilizes a contributor model in which a wide network of contributors writes and publishes articles directly on the website. The contributors are paid based on traffic, yada, yada, yada. And I, I think um, there's an important point here that – it's it's nuanced. Right. Like there's no one that's going to tell you straight up this source could or is, is less likely to be reliable in that they have such a wide network of writers that may have some strong bias in one direction or the other. But that's part of the problem. This is going to lead right into our discussions about media literacy tonight. But like that, that is part of the problem. Right. That even brand names uh, uh, don't necessarily mean. That, uh, that you can trust them. And there's a great article. Um, well, we should probably.
1: Let me segue to that. Let me say one more thing. You just brought up another great strategy, part of SIFT, part of what Caulfield recommends, and that is utilize Wikipedia. So I firmly believe, it, you know, at least where, where I'm living, and maybe the, and this, sure, there's lots of things different where, different contexts, but I think in general, Wikipedia is undervalued in schools today. Agreed. In, in, tremendous resource it is. And one of the ways we can use it is to look up a news source. And I've utilized this with some Facebook stuff that's come up uh, in the last few weeks where somebody shared a source. I'm like, who the heck is that? And and again, rather than go to the about page for that site, I'm going to Wikipedia. And then you can look at the talk pages because if there's controversy it will be reflected on the Wikipedia page, if not on the front page, when you go click on the talk link and you can see how people are are hashing out debates. And so these are great conversations. And I, um, I in the Geek of the Week, I'll mention a, a new project that I'm working on. But I just man, I love I just feel it is I, I want to segue to your media literacy articles Jason. We got to talk about Twitter. Uh, you know what? We actually have to talk about our president tonight. Which generally we are skirting around from political issues. We're not going to be going full on who here's who to vote for. We don't do that on this show folks, but we are going to talk about I know cuz these articles are in there, you know, how is media literacy and Twitter and the policies of of you know, what uh, platforms that are sharing information, you know, their responsibilities, what can they do? yada, yada, yada. So, Dr. Neifer, how would you like to take us into uh, that part of our conversation tonight?
0: Well, a lot of interesting uh, pieces of the narrative here, and it was a really big, you could even say uh, a 24 hours on on media literacy and, and social media. But let's start off with what I think may be one of the greatest articles I've read in the last week about media literacy. Uh, this is from today's, which is kind of effectively yesterday's uh, uh, BBC publishing an article. And they actually have a um, a, a, a journalist who is specifically covering disinformation and social media. And that's, that's such a BBC thing to have someone uh, for that. But she wrote a really great article about the human cost of virus misinformation. And I mean, th- there's no doubt that if you've been keeping an eye on this, and I know that I've been listening more to the on the media podcast from WNYC, which is if you're interested in media literacy or more broadly, the media, it's an extraordinarily weekly uh, a show uh, uh from a public radio source who I tend to give a lot of trust to personally based on my own history. But this talks about that it's not – this is not in the abstract that when – disinformation or misinformation or just plainly false sources become perpetuated in the social media echo chamber, it can actually cause real lives. And they, they're talking about this in context of the uh, hydrochloroquine issue uh, related to international things that have happened in the last week, including uh, the World Health Organization halting their own study and trials because the Lancet reported that those that have contracted the coronavirus that uh, hydrochloroquine and had become dangerous, right? Like, in other words, uh, opposite of what we're looking to, to go for. But the, there's, there's a number of statistics in here. I would strongly suggest that you go to uh, edtechsr.com slash links and get this link, right? Read this article. Share this with your students if you're still uh, in school this year. But they talked about how um, uh, in Iran, right, which had an early massive – a uh, 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 number of cases of covid nineteen um that and it and, uh, rans a little bit of a mystery black box to us because they their internet isn't uh, they have kind of a more or less an internal internet in fact they've got an, uh, the ability to literally shut off the outside internet based on uh, on government whims it's it's obviously the opposite of uh western style democracy but uh they've been talking about internally that uh the, the medical officials have reported that 796 people um uh, have died of alcohol poisoning because there had been a number of social media posts regarding um alcohol as a treatment or a preventative measure for covid-19 and uh, you know it was uh, perpetuated as a cure 796 souls lost to Internet rumors, right? And I get that the Internet there is a little different than the Internet in, in the rest of, of the broader world, but this is not an abstract topic. Media literacy is is a real thing that we have to impart in our students. And if you ever need any evidence about the importance of this topic, that article Blew me away. And it goes through a number of the other pieces, including the uh, stuff a couple weeks back about things like Lysol and bleach being potential cures um, uh, uh various myths about uh, the coronavirus, especially in the early days before there was more widespread discussion in uh, with the World Health Organization. And um, they used the term in the article infodemic. Uh, which is the World Health Organization term for what's going on right now? So uh, I guess Wes, I mean, I, I I feel like you're you're the expert in my life on this. Um, I don't think you have have by any stretch of the imagination diminished the importance of media literacy as costing real lives. But does anything stick out to you here based on um the BBC's coverage?
1: Absolutely. You know, um, sometimes we we feel like I mean. Information is soft and we feel like, well, it's just somebody's opinion. And and there and of course, there are, there are all kinds of ways where it doesn't have these kind of concrete impacts. But I think this is huge. And I also think it's important to, end it, to note the global nature of this. Right. Again, sometimes we're thinking this is just political. This is just the United States. This is just, you know, polarized politics, you know, Republicans, Democrats, yada, yada, yada. I mean, this is global in nature. The Internet is a global phenomenon. Our connected world, this is <laughs> the Internet is global. It is. it And so these things are touching us all. So I think it's excellent. And case studies are really valuable, right, to be able to pull these kinds of things out. And um, I mean, we've seen a number of articles and reflections. Dan Rather had a really, uh, I think, poignant post on his Facebook page with a poem and thinking about a 100,000 deaths and, you know, how relevant to other kinds of disasters and things like that. So I think this is fantastic. And I have not seen that article actually, or if I had, I mean, this is again, one of the reasons why I love the show and it's so beneficial, you know, because when Jason says, Hey, this is really, we're, we're filters for each other. And hopefully for you, if you're watching the show, there's so much information out there. One of the key skills that we all need to get better at is how to filter information and how to determine who we trust and then how we're going to decide what to do with information that these these sources share with us. So I appreciate you highlighting that. And I think that the media literacy Strand, because we were we were working in vertical teams today, which was fantastic. I had several great meetings uh, for for this last you know day of man, mandated professional development for our school, and so we're doing scope and sequence, and you know vertical alignment of classes, and uh, and and I may actually end up writing a little textbook that goes along with my fifth and sixth grade media literacy and digital literacy curriculum. And I want to continue weaving that through as a strand. And, uh, you know, it's good to know about this because, again, these are like dots where and connecting the dots. This is part of what we need to do. It's what an education tries to do for all of us. Right. Uh, we hear these different data points and articles and things like that. Uh, how do we make sense of them? And so it's very helpful to have that perspective. And I look forward to reading that article in greater depth because I didn't have yep. chance to do that before the show.
0: Yep, you'll love it. It's really great. Okay, well, let's open Pandora's box here uh, because I think actually Twitter has opened up Pandora's box. Uh, uh, it's moving the conversation along, so I certainly wouldn't disagree with the action they've taken here. But... Um, you may have heard, because it was well covered in the media, that uh, Twitter did something that they don't do that often, and they labeled uh, two of the president's tweets yesterday regarding mail-in ballots. And for those of you that are unaware of the political side of this, that many states are moving towards mail-in ballots um, ironically, one of the leaders in this is the state of Washington, whose secretary of state is a Republican. So, uh, the mail-in ballot advocacy and criticism, to be clear, too, crosses party lines back and forth, right? But generally speaking, um, Republicans tend to be against this as a strategy, citing, um, concerns with security as opposed to Democrats tend to, uh, uh see it as an opportunity to increase the um, uh, voter participation and um, uh, President Trump yesterday said that it was going to be a, a, a big deal and that it was going to lead to uh, increased uh, scams uh, inside of uh, election results. And it was it was super bad. And what has been really interesting to me is that uh, Twitter decided to put in a link on the tweet saying find out more information labeled the president's tweet as false, and then provided, I mean, an extraordinary number of articles. I counted at least eight or nine before I gave up. To be really clear, they are media sources that the president would label as fake news, right? I do not believe that The Washington Post and CNN and the other sort mainstream sources cited in the article would be considered fake news but at the same time that's what they 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 did and and also uh i thought this was really interesting too because they they had to they had to spend time doing this uh cultivating this with a human being they found experts that were speaking on this issue on twitter they were all verified which i thought was interesting but experts in political science and the study of elections to also say that the claims of the president were false. This led to an expected storm, right? Uh, president Trump freaked out, uh, said this morning that we're going to have to consider either closing down or heavily regulating social media platforms. Um, there is a, uh, well, there, uh, there's kind of a story here. So if you start to weave it all together, um, so that's uh th- this is uh c n n that's reporting the articles that I share in the in the show notes. Then the verge today talked about that there has been a number of lawsuits against social media platforms that have claimed they have a a liberal bias right that they tend to silence conservative voices. What the verge uh claims is that uh if you look at the lawsuits. These don't go anywhere. They get almost universally dismissed by judges, in part because there isn't a ton of First Amendment implications because uh, you can go to another platform. Right. Or you can develop your own platform in the same way that in the past when I've been critical of newspaper comment sections and encourage newspapers to shut them down. I, I've had people claim to me free speech uh, uh, pieces, but the thing is you don't have the right to speak through your newspaper locally. You don't have the right to comment on news locally, especially since there are literally hundreds of thousands of other platforms to do that. And then um, uh, th- then there was, a, was kind of a counter response. Uh, Facebook said today Mark Zuckerberg went on the record to say that he thought it was wrong. For Twitter to do this and he said an interesting point the Zuck said that you know that Facebook does not want to be the arbiter of truth and that we should have an open and free debate about things so it's a massive can of worms but let me start here uh Dr. Fryer what where are you at with this uh what observations do you have about this kind of extraordinary 18
1: well the 48 hours in social media it's about time it's about time that we started to not give elected leaders, and I'm not just talking about our president, I'm talking about others, a free pass to not follow the same community guidelines and, and regulations and rules that the rest of us have to follow. Um, I put an article link into the, the notes, uh, which I actually, it's, you can read it with text, but this is a PBS NewsHour from yesterday. And the title of this segment is called How Trump Leverages Twitter to spread misinformation. And, um, and by the way, I, I really do see if I can can't type and, um, speak at the same time. Uh, I really do like the words disinformation, uh, misinformation, malinformation, information, pollution, uh, shared an article a, a week or so ago, talking a little bit about that and why those are preferable to, uh, the term fake news. But, um, this is a distraction. Uh, you know, we are not talking about other things that are more important. And one of the things here too, and this hasn't been addressed in the same way <clears throat> is this 21 year old story of this woman who died and whether or not her husband who now is a news anchor, you know, was involved in her death and, and the president, you know, tweeted about this and the, the, the uh, widow, the widowed husband is uh, appealing to Twitter to take these down. look, Presidents and other people are subject to the law as well, and so we should not be giving elected leaders a free pass just because you have to be happen to be today the elected leader of the free world i don 't think you should have a free pass to say whatever you want on Twitter. Twitter has the ability right now under u s law to you know censor and have policies about the content that that they have um, There's another article that I'll just do a quick shout out to um, that our son actually told me about tonight. And I put this down. I put it down under... Copyright, I guess. Uh, Gizmodo, May 22nd. U.S. Copyright Office says it's time to update the DMCA, mostly in favor of rights holders, and then reclaim the net on May 23rd, um, which is an advocacy group like EFF, uh, similar for you know you know protect freedom. U.S. Copyright Office proposes stripping YouTube of some of its DMCA safe harbor protections. There's really really important issues here, and one of the things Silicon Valley has feared is that if they crack down on our president and especially on. Cons- conservative voices, then a Republican controlled Congress is going to come in and regulate them. And this is back to the tech correction that we've talked about for so long. I do think we're going to see regulation. Europe is ahead of the United States with this in some ways with the um, the how I want to say Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That's us. Um, Help me with the acronym, Jason. Uh, what is the, the, the privacy laws? The, th- the gen- general, the GDPR. GDPR you know, the general directive on privacy regulation. GDPR. Ta-da! Um, I've been losing my edge. I was like, you know, when you debate in college, man, you gotta have it on the tip of your tongue. So we're showing our age sometimes, but sometimes we get it. Anyway. I think we are going to see some regulation of tech companies right now. We just don't have privacy protection here in the United States like they do in Europe. And so I, my overall response is it's about time. Yes, this is going to be causing, you know, issues, but I'm frustrated that the fact that, our president wants to tweet about something just becomes a headline that everybody has to focus on, right? People have talked for a while about these, you know, the, the regular news conferences and things like that, that, I mean, we just, we didn't, everything that comes out of his mouth doesn't need to be on everybody's top of the brain, you know, thinking. Um, but, you know, when you are the leader of the, of the United States, I guess you, you have that privilege, but I'm thinking that this is a positive. How, how are you seeing this through your lens, Dr. I
0: I agree, but I still think it goes back to the fact that it's, you're, it's not going to convince the people that probably need to be convinced to look at broader sources, to look at broader sources, right? That's the problem we've run into in the uh well and the tech correction right that that uh you can cite all of the sources that i think have have mainstream legitimacy to them you want but if someone dismisses them as part of the grand media conspiracy i think it's really hard i think it's really hard to have meaningful conversations and um you know i, I I'll, I'll go back to the fact that the Internet itself has become – well, let, let me give you, give you another article that I think is, is kind of proves my point. A really interesting article that I'm not really surprised about, but The Guardian reported on yesterday that a number of local TV news stations, and I have a little story to tell with this one, were caught basically running Amazon PR copy um, and – The reason why I have a little bit of insider perspective on this is back in the uh, early 90s when I was in high school, I was a production assistant for a television station in Great Falls. That was my job, my sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. And I ran the camera and I ran the teleprompter and I typed up AP scripts and I occasionally wrote stories and uh, it was great. I was uh, at that point, I kind of fancied myself as maybe being a future journalist and it was super fun. And I got to run center field camera at a baseball game once and really cool stuff. But. Um, you know, the weekends in Great Falls, Montana, sometimes the news isn't so uh, uh prolific, right? And you can only run so much AP copy. So, you know... We would sometimes pull things off of a shelf that was a sponsored story and it wasn't like, like advertising sponsored, but it would be like a company that was developing a new technology. It's, it's PR stuff, right? And so you rewrite the copy and you use their stuff and you put it on the air. That's been going on for a very long time. So that's not a new phenomenon here. Public relations do this, but the story here is interesting and the video that comes along with it is creepy, 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 but basically, local news stations took Amazon script and the video that was sent with it from public relations people at Amazon and ran it as news on local news sources and the reason why the video is creepy is because they overimpose. I think it's like nine different anchors reading the exact same copy, and so it feels pretty uh, 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 utopian post eighty four something something something
1: dystopian. Thank yeah. you uh, for that. Uh, yeah,
0: apparently I don't have the words to recall That's okay. either. That's all right. I'm here, but to but you know, the Guardian is uh, uh, is is. Well, actually, I'm not saying that right. I'm sure that all these news stations themselves are considered legitimate news sources in their community. And here they are running like like literally public relations information for Amazon. And so you got to be careful, right? Like it that everything, even in sources that you trust, right, is probably due a little bit of additional research, if it in any way challenges you in a way that you're not expecting or goes against the norm of what you believe about something.
1: And and I want to segue back to this copyright office, you know, YouTube deal, because this is where it relates. Um, Safe Harbor, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA has given the platform Safe Harbor for not being liable for the content that they have. And it has, you know, in the case of fair use, given a broader latitude to creators to be able to use materials. Um, if we have a crackdown that, that is regulatory, <clears throat> coming from different kinds of directions, these things can happen by executive order. It doesn't have to just be, I think, via Congress. You know, the media landscape um, can change and shift. Um, and so I also will say, and this goes back to that PBS news hour, like right now different entities weaponize social media and hijack the news. So, and this is something that's a relatively recent phenomenon. um, And I think it's something that we need to be grappling with as a culture and as a civilization. Um, And so we don't have clear answers for this, but definitely the, the provisions of law and specifically copyright law and liability have played into this. And so, You know, this is sort of, it's not really a rumor like we have a rumor of Apple glasses coming out, but this is the, the copyright office had a, a a report that came out. And so seeing how both Congress and the executive branch respond to that is going to be pretty interesting. And I just, I'm glad to see us trying to address these issues because I, I think overall one of the things that we saw with the tech correction was just the failure of the platforms. And here I'm talking about Facebook to the largely, but also Twitter and, and, and other uh, YouTube, Google, their failure to step up to their responsibility because – they are so powerful, and and I think we have probably had these comparisons before about the you know GDP of countries and things like that. I mean, these these companies are are larger and and wield more financial clout and certainly global influence than a heck of a lot of countries you know in the world. So I'm. This is something important to follow. This is something we need to be talking with kids about. It's complex. There's a lot of parts and pieces to the puzzle. It's also hard because it touches on polarization issues and political issues. And we've talked about that before in the show, how there could be, possibly be a tendency. And it's been historic throughout time. And maybe it's greater today because we're more polarized some would say than we have been as teachers to steer clear of issues that are going to have anything to do with politics, but shoot, we're being polarized over masks, right? The governor of North Dakota, I think just, you know, gave a plea on media yesterday to say, please don't make this into a Republican Democrat issue. If you're immunocompromised or you've uh, got a child who is or whatever, I mean, you're going to have to wear a mask. So, highly polarized environment really important issues and i i'm glad we're having a chance to talk about it and would love to hear you know your thoughts not only for those of you joining us live but anybody after the fact you know we've got our twitter ids out there it's a it's uh these issues are not going away uh that's why they continue to appear uh week after week in some cases you know on our our list of links. So anything else there, Dr. Neifer, under media literacy that <clears throat> you want to mention or pontificate about?
0: Um, not, not any deeper on that particular topic, but I would say that um, you should also, in addition to talking about this with students and your colleagues, also talk about it with your families. And um, you know, I, I, I have, I, am very, I, I'm, I'm very lucky my parents keep up with the media. I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's they're as, as deep in the news as I am, but they keep up with the media and want to talk about it with me on the phone and look through things. My in-laws, too, are uh, very uh, well-read and like to keep up with, with pieces. But talk with your family about this, too. And also, if you see someone citing a news source that is clearly sketch rama say something.
1: There you go. All right. Well, uh, we've got a little bit more time. Let me, let, why don't we do a couple quick ones? Can we kind of go back and forth? Yeah. Uh, here's a quick one, but it's, of course it's from Forbes. So let's be careful. Uh, <laughs> this is from May 26th, China just crossed a dangerous line for Huawei new retaliatory retaliatory responses threatened. Uh, I did check the source of this fellow who is a, a owner of a cybersecurity company. Um, we've talked about this too. You want to talk about a complicated issue, like what's playing out on the global stage between the U S and China and how does Huawei fit into that and 5g? Well, we're having a global rollout of a new cellular technology called 5g, which when it is available on cell towers and when, you know, we all have devices that can connect to it, which means we're going to have new ones. It's going to blow away connectivity that we have today. In fact, right now in remote learning, if, if we all had 5g connections we wouldn't be having many connectivity problems, maybe, but <clears throat> there's a big war going on between the the United States, uh, especially and China, and this company called Huawei, which was founded by a former military uh, high-ranking general in the Chinese military, and and now the United States is trying to block Huawei's equipment from being utilized in the build out of infrastructure because. Basically, this is my understanding and it it could be totally wrong. I don't think the, the U.S. government wants China to have the same capacity that was proven through the Snowden revelations in the United States that we could just tap into the Internet, suck all the data out and read everyone's mail. And so what's happened most recently is uh the United States has done some prohibitions against companies. It's going to be blocking Silicon chips from being used by Huawei. China is trying to develop their domestic production capacity, but they can't ramp that up fast enough. And so this is really going to bite them economically. And specifically in the United Kingdom, they had waffled a little bit and now apparently the United Kingdom is going to be doing a security review and, uh, possibly deciding not to use Huawei equipment in their 5G rollout. I said that was going to be fast and that was a really long lawyer response, but <laughs> your thoughts, Dr. Knifer on this, you know, fairly complex situation.
0: Um, Globalization is being challenged right now with COVID-19. Also the global economy has largely broken down right now. It's showing some life and trying to figure out how to adapt but this is this is exactly the core of the critical issues uh that you know when we started this notion of globalization 25 years ago uh it, we were or specifically about this because we really couldn't have known where where the direction this was going into but i would say i'm not surprised by this and it's certainly something to watch
1: all right. What's your next article? If you want to
0: um, I just a couple quick ones. Uh, there is a new Windows update. It's the May twenty twenty update for Windows ten, and I've I've added two articles. One of them is a PC Magazine article that goes through, um, uh, some of the, the the new features coming out, uh, including one that I think is super awesome. You can now reinstall Windows from the cloud. And what I mean by that is instead of uh, uh, reinstalling with a USB drive and Windows makes it so much easier than they used to uh, because you can just download a copy from them and without having to go to some sketchy website to do it and then install it from a Microsoft image. But now you don't have to do that anymore. You can literally uh, start in this new version of Windows 10 to reinstall from scratch. So restart your computer completely without even having to download anything. i will just do it for you. But I would also remind you that you shouldn't install this new version yet Microsoft is, is acting much more safely than they used to uh, a few years back. Uh, they aren't rolling out as quickly. They do uh, a soft rollouts, uh, uh, prioritizing users that want it first. But I would say wait two or three months until the kinks are worked out. There's been some articles, I think they were from Forbes, about uh, some of the things that have happened with the update, the May 2020 update. So I've also included a great article from The Verge last week on how to pause updates I would suggest, especially if you're working at home right now and you aren't really hip on wiping windows and starting over again, if you don't have a local nerd or you yourself are not a nerd and you can't pull that off, Wait, I you know if there's too much going on. You rely on your your computer for too much. You've got a spare one. That's fine. But don't take your your daily driver desktop or laptop and install this yet. I, I'm usually an early installer and I'm going to wait uh, at least at least six to eight weeks before I install the new version.
1: And on the Apple front mentioned just a couple. I know we've got some Apple users in the audience tonight. Um, there have been some updates and some weird things happened. My daughter brought me her phone the other day and said, dad, what's up? I can't open YouTube. It says it's no longer shared with you. What is that? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's just delete the app and download it again. And we did. And it worked, but uh, she's not the only one. So uh, Forbes, got a few Forbes articles. Um, <laughs> says, iPhone user mayhem. Here's why hundreds of iOS apps are suddenly updating. That was Forbes on May 26th. And then another uh, Forbes article, um, iOS 13.5 chaos, the frustrating problem. It's making iPhone apps useless. Um, there are several updates to those articles, too. These are being patched and updated. But anyway, it could have had to do with family sharing. It could have had to do with security certificates. But seeing some issues like that, always a good idea to update, uh, restart your device And, um, Hey, security certificates, that's a thing. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for the things I'm not responsible for anymore at our school as the recovering director of technology after four years, but Hey, keeping your certificates updated for your website, for your servers, um, for your mobile device management platform, all these things are important. And Hey, sometimes, uh, some things happen with Apple. So it didn't cause my daughter to stop being able to see YouTube, but it was an interruption. And we also are... You know, like we said, seeing some rollouts of some some new technologies with COVID and, and contact tracing. And so there's, you know, more updates that are being pushed out. On your iOS device, I recommend people do go ahead and keep your automatic updates turned on. There's just so many. And we haven't seen the large-scale breaks with iOS like we have seen with Windows 10. But I'm very – among other things I'm thankful for, I am not wrestling with Windows 10 labs that we've had – Related to firmware, but also Windows updates, we had uh, a mess of, of issues with. So I think your advice there on holding off on the auto updates for your Windows 10 box is good. So we are at the top of the hour. Thanks to EdTechTeacher to uh, tuning in via Facebook and giving us some love there. Any other articles, Dr. Neifer, before we geek of the week it? No, in fact, I'm so excited. I want to skip right to the geek of the week. There you go. We'll go for it, sir. You're okay.
0: Well, I don't know if you have an experience with earlier versions of the software, Wes, but I always used to love the Air AirParrot uh, suite and also Reflector from Squirrels. Um, uh, it, it, great software. Basically, what it allowed you to do was take your desktop computer and sling it somewhere else like a um, uh, Chromecast or an Apple TV, or um, uh, I'm thinking, trying to think of a third one, and I can't remember it. But that's not the point. But Miracast. Yeah, Mir okay. yeah, Miracast, which is a, 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 a another great protocol for 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 sending video around. Well, this week they released the third version of both AirParrot and Reflector. Um, I bought them for thirty bucks. It was both Mac and PC uh, 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 serial numbers plus um. Uh, I bought both of them at the same time and the new version is amazing. And I'll give you an example of, of, of how cool it is. So, uh, AirParrot, I have installed in my Windows box and I happen to have a television in my new home office that is, it's an older 32 inch flat panel that was, uh, uh, in a brief graduate apartment I had five or six years ago and it's sitting in the corner and it's got a Chromecast on it. I can actually turn that into a third monitor. I have two monitors on my desktop setup, a third monitor via software. So all I have to do is say, become a third monitor, on the Chromecast, and it becomes a third. I can just drag a window onto the Chromecast or um, a Miracast, or if I'm using AirPlay on on an Apple TV, I can do that. Um, the interface is super simple. I can even take desktop media like an MP4 file and stream it to any of those devices. And then for those of you that uh, many PD professionals know about this one, but but Reflector is a great piece of software on Mac or PC that basically turns your computer into a place to sling a device like your mobile device. So I can take my Android phone, open Reflector up, and I can send or Chromecast this to my desktop and then show it like on a projector or I can see it larger or take screenshots or videos of it. Uh, super easy, super easy to set up, worth every dollar. And I think I spent thirty-one fifty-five or something on it. But for those of you that do a lot of presentations or like to kind of mess around or in you know you like a lot of monitors and you have a, a second, third screen in your room that's a television, throw Chromecast or Apple TV on there. Cast it right over. It's not perfect because it has to go over software. It's not as real time as a real mod would be, but for you know, a lot of applications, super sweet. Airsquirrels.com. Tell them Jason sent you or don't there because they go. don't know why I'm.
1: That's right. Don't expect a discount, but hey, you can tell them that. <laughs> and I appreciate the Twitter love. So you can reach out to real you know, tag, tag Jason in your tweet. Uh, so I'm only going to do one geek of the week tonight. I know that's going to shock everyone. Uh, I've started a new project that hopefully is going to become a workshop at the digital literacy summer Institute. Uh, Right now we're calling it conspiracies and culture wars. Uh, I don't know if it'll be that in the future, but uh, in the about, I said, this is a brainstorming collaboration document for conspiracies and culture wars, um, which will hopefully morph and branch into different directions. Um, we want to encourage and empower people to be literate and constructive citizens of our communities. And so we need to know how social media and digital technologies are shaping public receptions, mainstream media headlines, and culture, uh, connecting the dots, filtering information, identifying credible sources, et cetera. So I am excited, and I'm partnering with uh, Brian Turnbaugh, who is WeGoTwits on Twitter. Shout out to Brian. And, uh, yeah, this is the media literacy journey. Uh, where is it going to take us? You know, it, uh, maybe in a few years, it may uh, take me to a university to be employed to teach about it full time at the university level. I don't know. I think every single school, no matter where you are, uh, and, and this may, you know, not just be in pre K and kindergarten, but as students start using the web, especially, and that happens at a very early age, you know, web literacy, media literacy, information literacy, these things need to be uh, skills that we're regularly talking about. And there's a whole lot of conspiracy theory and weaponization of social media and things that impact our democracy and our elections. We just need to understand those better. And so you can watch that document if you want to and see where that goes. But it's hopefully going to go somewhere this summer. So, Dr. Neifer, when you're not here talking as we are after the top of the hour, which sometimes happens, where can people find you online?
0: Hey, I'm on Twitter, TechSavvyTeach. Uh, I, I like Twitter. Twitter's fun. Uh, you can get a lot of different points of view. And EdTech Twitter is always an interesting place to find out more about tech. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education blog, .ncc.org. And, hey, I do want to announce that uh, Montana Digital Academy is sponsoring or is a sponsor for the Mountain Moot uh, which is usually a Moodle conference but they are going all online this year like many other conferences it's mid-July and it's free and we're going to really work on trying to find an opportunity to get and I'll probably end up talking to my friend Dr. Fryer here to see if he's interested in participating as well but uh, we want to get a lot of people there it's honestly the best small conference I've ever been to uh, after this whole COVID thing said and done you should go to this conference it's at my Alma mater Carroll college in helena montana and they just got a great vibe and lots of wonderful people an international audience but it's still a small conference but it's going to be online it's going to be free and we're going to work really really hard with the folks at Carroll to try to get as many teachers that want to be challenged to think about ways to do remote teaching differently at that
1: mountainmoot.com and you sir Hey, we're going to need uh, drop that link in, please, if you haven't already into the show notes. Uh, W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org is, is the blog. And rumor is two, two rumors to pass along. You can consider the source. You know, Jason may in at a, at a some, at a future date when we can safely gather you know be bringing uh, homemade sourdough bread i may be bringing smoked brisket to some kind of face to face event and hey maybe we'll do a shout out and see who else wants to join us the other rumor is it uh, looks like i'm going to do in the first uh, 2 weeks of july an ipad media camp and also a make media camp for remote learning uh dates and details to come soon they should have been announced months ago but you know it is what it is we're just finishing up emergency remote learning so Excellent. Well, this
0: here is not an event in July, although I'm sure we'll be around in July to to tell about it. This is the situation where we are a once a week podcast on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain Time. 9 p.m. Central, somewhere in the middle of the night, UTC. But, hey, if you're in Western Europe and you don't want to join us in the middle of the night, you can just go anywhere where fire podcasts are aggregated, download a copy of the podcast. We're in all the major podcast apps. You can go to our website, techsr.com. get a little tiny version, plus see the show notes, plus see all the links, or you can see us on YouTube. But if you want to join us live, we'd love to have an audience. We're broadcasting on Facebook and YouTube, uh, www.techsr.com for details. Until next time, be safe, be savvy, and we hope to see you here on the EdTech Situation Room. Good day. Good night, everybody.